When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. A Pantheon podcast. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, let's rip off the shrink wrap and get to the show. And this is The Art of Rock with Kosh and Friends. I'm coming to you today from the couch in Pete Dell's studio, next door to mine in the heart of Hollywood. We are part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. There are many fine rock and roll shows put together by a sundry of hosts. And if you like this show, I'm sure you're going to find at least one or two others you would really dig. Go to pantheonpodcast.com to learn more. Today, I'm with the rock legend, photographer Neil Preston, and you are going to hear his amazing stories about his many adventures with the greatest rock artists of all time. We are going on tour, backstage, in the studio and on the road with Queen and Freddie Mercury, Led Zeppelin, astounding, Eagles, Muttley Crew, Wait for the Frozen Glacier story, Bruce Springsteen, Pearl Jam, Michael Jackson, Bob Dylan, Tom Petty, The Who... Madonna and Stevie Nicks, and so many more. Neil has an incredible book of his photography that includes insights and notes of working alongside all the greats in music. It is filled with insight and anecdotes into his craft. It's an absolutely beautiful book, worthy to be on the shelf or coffee table of any rock fan. It's called Neil Preston, Exhilarated and Exhausted. Buy it. Neil was the kind of photographer to blend into his surroundings, ready to capture the shot that would define a performance or capture the moment. He is truly one of the greats who was able to document all that was happening in music. So, stay tuned, pull over and revel in Neil's revelations. Is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? Caught in a 
landslide No escape from reality Open your eyes Look up to the skies and see I'm just a Go little high, little low. Anywhere the wind blows doesn't really matter to me. Today I'm speaking with renowned Nay, iconic rock and roll photographer Neil Preston. He's also famous for his sports and fashion photography. So now, here is Neil Preston. Hello. Neil, thank you for coming. I know you had to travel so far, all the way from Willoughby, I think. <laughs> no, uh, I had to blocks. travel all the way from Studio City. Actually. Oh, no, even worse. Yes. Yeah, that, that's an old address, and I keep getting robocalls from oh, Google. Oh, good. Oh, robocalls. You, you Let's have, get into you that. You need yes. to change your business, you know. And I have, if it's a live person who robocalls me, I guarantee you they'll never call me again. Yeah, after, no, me after too. The yeah. vitriol and the vile stuff that will come yes, out. Yes, I actually now. start going back to my Cockney heritage. And I start bringing out words that apparently Americans have never heard of, but they know uh, they're withering. <laughs> oh, well, they've heard of these. <laughs> well, believe me. So, uh, anyway, this but is it's what, my pleasure to be here. Well, thank you, thank you for coming in, because I've always admired your work. Um, cause, and we, our paths have never really crossed. We've never right. worked together. I don't think so. No. Um, I think we've had mutual, a few mutual clients, mm-hmm. and sometimes at the same period, too. Um, so we'll get into that later. What I really want to know um, is how you started, what got you into photography, and where did you learn and teach yourself and all the things that you did to make your, you know, to create your magnificent career. To get me here, yes, talking right. to you. Yes. Well, it's uh, it's not a long story, and it's very kind of organic and and just came from up above. Um, when I was a kid, I had every conceivable hobby, stamp collecting, coin collecting, you name it. My life changed in an hour on February 9th, 1964, the night the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan. Before that night, it was all about the New York Yankees, how many home runs did Mickey Mantle hit, et cetera, et cetera. I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, and the next morning... You know, I had my mom go out and buy me Meet the Beatles. Everyone, I wanted a guitar. Everything changed. I mean, as I like to say it, I wrote in my book, a nuclear bomb was delivered directly into my cortex by John Lennon. (laughs) There's no other way to put it. So rock and roll was everything to me at that point. Now, my dad had been a Broadway stage manager for years and years, so I was around theaters and performers and live uh, theatrical lighting and all that stuff. But the Beatles, that night, literally, that Sunday night changed everything. Around the same time, maybe six months later, my first of three brothers-in-law, sorry, Carol, my sister, um, gave me my first real camera, which was an Ansco Speedex Mm 4.5. And... If you looked at it, it didn't have a lens on it or anything, and I realized if you press this button, the store would open and Fire a lens on the end of a bellows would yeah. come out. And, and I'd try to take a picture, and nothing would happen. 
And then I figured out that there was a little lever that, if, that you had to cock the shutter. Yes, I remember that. So now that. I cock the shutter. It's called a compo okay. shutter, isn't it? Something like that, yeah. To me, it was a little silver you crank lever. crank that little thing. There. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, so then I could cock the shutter, press the button, cock the shutter, press the button. Now I'm in heaven. Mm. And I took that thing everywhere. And, and one day, I went to visit my dad at the theater. He, he was the stage manager at the time for the original Fiddler on the Roof. Oh. Uh, he used to call the lighting cues from a, a, a little booth right off, off the, the wings on stage right. If you peeked over, you could see the audience. There was a point where uh, the, the lead, I, I can't remember who the lead was, was sick. So the understudy was playing that matinee that day. He was playing the role of Tevia, the star. And there was a speech where he came over to stage right. He'd sit on a rock and he'd do this long speech and there would be laughs. And I knew the show backwards and forwards. I knew where every laugh would be. So I held my breath and during one laugh, I shot one frame of this actor. Mm-hmm. Um, and it came out really well. I made... I made some five by seven prints because I couldn't afford an eight by ten. Are you in your own little dark room here, or? Oh no, no, no. Well, this was color. Oh, okay. It was a, a transparency. Oh. And um, and I looked at the the frame. It looked great. So I made a couple of five by sevens and gave them to my dad to give them to the actor, who loved it. And th- that actual photo is in the book. Um, his name was Harry Gauze, and Harry gave my dad to give to me a a series of books on photography. Kind of like the World Book Encyclopedia. I don't remember who made them, but I devoured them, mm. and that's how I learned photography. That and just trial, trial and error. And what happened was, I, after that, I I had a garage band like everyone else, but I had no talent. <laughs> and me and a couple of buddies started taking our cameras to the local rock series, rock concert series, in Queens. Um. Uh, at the what used to be the the Singer Bowl, which then became Louis Armstrong Tennis Stadium, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't remember what the fir- I think the first show that I shot there was Jeff Beck. Ah. And the way I got in was yeah. This is my question. We we, we took we yes. took some prints to uh, the, that my buddies and I had shot over to what we thought was the local ticket office for the lo- for the concert series and it turned out to be the promoter's office. Oh, it's one of those forks in the road, nice you know. <laughs> and the uh, promoters were two guys, Shelley Finkel and Gary Kerfurst. Now, you may have run into Gary Kerfurst mm-hmm. over the years cuz he managed at the time Leslie West, sorry, Leslie Weinstein. Um and uh Mountain and uh I think at some point Talking Heads. He became a big yeah. rock manager. Shelley became a boxing promoter. But they were the promoters that did the local concert series, so they started letting me into all their shows. Fantastic. And I met managers and people starting rock magazines and writers, and the next thing I know, 50 years go by, and here I am. I mean, it goes that quickly. Um, the first big show that I remember shooting was in 1968, I believe. So I was 16 and a half or something. Yeah, I started really young. And it was a Jimi Hendrix show in Boston. And I'm this timid teenager. I think at that point I might have been able to have an old Leica M3. Uh Uh-huh, I know that. With a 135 
four five lens, I would have killed for an extra stop. Yeah, I was going to say or two. At least get a three five or two. Oh, I mean, yeah. I, but you know what? Now I look at some of those negs, and with the wonders of scanning and everything, it's like a time capsule. Stuff yes. I would never print, you, you can now make usable. But um, so I go to this Jimi Hendrix show, and I'm told. Go see his tour manager, Jerry Stickles. He'll tell you where he can stand. So I go, and he's this British guy with a handlebar mustache. He looks like every soccer yob you've ever seen. <laughs> and I'm introduced to him, and he says, I've been known to punch photographers in the fucking mouth. So I'm petrified of the guy. <laughs> Ten years later, I get hired to work with Queen. And I'm told, go see Jerry Stickles, oh, the no. tour manager. And I'm literally shaking in my boots. And, of course, Jerry turned out to be the nicest guy in the world. And he just passed away. And oh. uh, and I miss him terribly. But, you know, and the negs on the Jimi Hendrix uh, concert were lost years ago. Oh, no. Yeah, well, there's yeah. one print, one 8 by 10 print that I still had, which is also in the book. Mm. Um, but... That's how I got my start. So I used to shoot all over the venues in New York. Then I graduated high school. I applied to Rochester Institute of Technology, uh, NYU, who had okay. a film course, and Philadelphia College of Art, who had a good photography program. I decided on PCA, Philadelphia College of Art. My mom and dad had even put down a deposit on a tuition. And one day I walked into my mom and dad's uh bedroom and i said uh on a sunday morning i said okay i'll go get the locks and bagels i'll pick up the dry cleaning i'm not going to go to college i'll get the sunday times you know i tried to <laughs> slip a curveball in there well they hit the curveball and um but at the time i'd already been published and i had an uncle who said you know neil's got some talent and so they didn't they were okay with me not going to college oh really oh wow. um my sister, not so much. She wanted to be a Copa girl. <laughs> My dad said, there's no way. And she ended up going to secretarial school and became a very, very big-time exec secretary to Frank Lesser, who wrote How to Succeed in Business Without Really. He wrote the song, Mare Dotes and Ozzy Dotes and Little Dams, Lambsy Divey. Anyway, so that was 1970. And in 71, I spent the summer out in L.A., courtesy of a three-dog night press junket. Oh, right. Okay. And uh, met a girl on the last two days I was here. Boom, boom, boom. Um, and she was a PR person for rock bands. And three months later, October 15th, 1971, I said goodbye to my mom and dad and went to JFK and flew out here and here mm. I am. And there you are. So, and those days you could bring a 600 mil lens, you know. Yes. You'd I, have no. to stick it in your pants. I mean, no. They didn't. No one cared. No. You know, no one cared, and um, it was a seminal time. I didn't realize it, but there were people like myself, you know, Bob, you know, Gruen, even Gar, you know, in every city had their little pockets of people who were going along the same road, so to mm -hmm. speak, you know. Um, you know, Lynn, you know, Jim was in San Francisco. He started before me. But, you know, there was, it It, it was the the burgeoning. 
there was no such thing as rock and roll photography or rock photography, no. a term I abhor. It was just photography. Yes. Yeah. And I always fancied myself a photojournalist. Um, in 77, I decided, do I really want to be, you know, 78 years old waiting for Mick Jagger to crank one more tour up? Or, <laughs> you know, so I would see this photo credit everywhere. Uh, that had the agency named Camera 5. Mm. And Ken Regan was the owner and the head of Camera 5. And I called Ken Cold and I said, I want to work with you guys because I wanted to work for Time Life and Newsweek mm -hmm. and, and shoot hard news along with my music stuff. Right, okay. That that was a no-brainer. And, um, and he said, come to New York and see me. But his schedule was so heavy that I ended up having to take a red eye and meet him at 5.40 in the morning at his office on 20th Street. Oh, my God. And um, Ken became one of my closest friends. Um, Nakwood, and I miss him dearly. It's like all my friends are... But everyone's dropping like flies yeah, around. Yeah, it's terrible. But Ken, Ken, that was a tough one with Ken. Yeah. And um, so that's... And I got a, I had a Time Life contract, okay. which was a guarantee yeah, for shoot days. I got someone to tell time. But, but, I just want, I want to go back a little mm -hmm, bit, because yep. you, were, you were talking about in your early days and, and all the other photographers who were around, mm -hmm. and you were sort of running off names, you know, but Jim, mm -hmm. Jim, Tim. Yeah, well, I, need, I need you to sort of flesh that out a little well, bit. Uh, I mean, I remember in New York, and you know, I got into the business at the end of, well, essentially '69, the end right. of '68, '68, but we'll say '69. So this would be my fiftieth year in the business. Right. You know, Bob Gruen w was starting out. Uh, Lynn uh, Gold. Uh, Lynn Goldsmith. Lynn Goldsmith, you know, was starting out. You know, we all had our contacts and our people that we knew. Um, there were some other, Chuck Pollan, you know. There were the A-level right. people and the B-plus level people. <laughs> but every, you know, every city, you know, and, and when I moved to L.A. in 71, it was Sam and Tony, you know, mm -hmm. Sam Emerson, Tony yeah. Lowe. Um, uh, there was a guy named Bob Jenkins. I don't know if you I don't know uh, that one. He was a great photographer, um, unfortunately, died. Oh, okay. Um, uh, you know, uh, I'd have to think of some other. But it names. doesn't matter. But the point was, there's a seethe of activity going. Yeah, on Yeah, in San Francisco, the... Jim, of course, the yeah. Mike that's where you go. Jim, who? Jim Marshall. Thank you. <laughs> well, I, you know, I assume everyone knows. <laughs> I know Michael Zagaris. We, we listen. We, listen, we got a rock and roll right, right, audience. Right. You might not quite get it. So I'd like you just to sort of. Well, Jim, Jim Marshall was always considered yeah. the king of all of them. Mm. And shot the famous Johnny Cash yes. finger picture, some very famous stuff. I, Jim was a friend of mine, crazy as he made Keith Moon look normal. But um, we've, got to, we've got to come to Kim, Keith Moon uh, further uh, down the line. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, he started in the early '60s. Excuse me, and shot a lot of jazz. For my money, the king of all of them is Ethan Russell, and Ethan had started out in San Francisco. He had a brother-in-law, someone who was in Blue Cheer, the band. Yes, sir, I, think I remember Blue Cheer. Yeah. But so, I think I remember meeting him. But it. Ethan, yeah. uh, and I just wrote the foreword to his book that's coming out, um, Ethan, on a whim, moved from San Francisco to London. Right, this is where I come in, yeah. Right, and his story is fantastic because he was working, he was doing... Uh, charity work in a hospital 
uh, or hospice or some medical uh, hospital. And he met someone there who happened to be a rock writer who came to him. And he, Ethan was a photographer. He wasn't very accomplished. but And the guy says to him, uh, I'm, shoot, I'm, I'm interviewing a musician next week if he'd like to come and shoot some pictures. Who's the musician? Mick Jagger. Mm. So he goes to shoot Mick. A week later, the guy says, I've got another interview if you want to shoot it. Ethan says, who? It's John Lennon. Cut to Ethan is now shooting Let It Be. When they film Let It Be, he's right. on the roof with the Beatles. So, yeah. He's the only guy that did covers for the Beatles, the Stones, and the Who. He did the famous Who's Next cover where they're all peeing on the Yeah, that's, my, that's my cover. And he, <laughs> ga- and he gave, well, you know what? I've got a 40 by 60 enlarged proof sheet of black and white Have you that really? he shot that day. Oh, wow. It's one of my prized possessions. And he, and he did the booklet for Quadrophenia. Yeah. Not the front cover. But we the, actually, together, we did the book, booklet for Let It Be. There was a big book in okay, the Let It Be great. package. Oh, so are you in touch with Get Ethan? Back. Not recently, no. Well, because no. I talk to him every other yeah. day now. And um, I'm going to mention that I, we talked. But yeah. he's, to, to, for my money, he's the best ever. Mm. And then he got out of shooting stills. He moved back to, to the States. I know he did some stuff for Linda Yeah, we James. Did, we did Prisoner in Disguise. We did Hazen Down the Wind. Right, right. Um, and on the and, back cover, isn't there a tight shot of her? Yes. Well, my friend Andy Fisher runs the WEA archives now. Oh. And we we looked for the original 4-5 transparency, but couldn't find it. But he did find an original James, I guess, Mudslide Slim. Slim, yeah. Right. yeah. So... Um, but uh, you know, okay. but you know, Jim Marshall obviously his work speaks okay. for itself. But I mean, you know, something now I want to talk about the work that speaks for itself for yourself. Talk about you know, some of the great relationships you've had mm-hmm. with your clientele. Yeah, um, I mean, Queen. Queen, obviously. You know, I mean, I need to touch Eagles with you a bit because uh, sure. we both we both worked at the you know, same time on that. Um, um, yeah. Okay. Let's let's go with Queen and Led Zeppelin first. Okay. Well, Led Zeppelin's like Led sort Zeppelin, of big okay. finale, isn't it? Let's put it this way. Having the words lead and Zeppelin on your <laughs> resume will never hurt you. This is true. Yes. Um, now, I always, when I was in high school or whatever, I always gravitated towards the English bands. Right. I was not a punk guy or anything, you know. And um, the first time that I ever photographed Led Zeppelin was on a fluke. They did a press conference at the Drake Hotel in New York in 1970, and it had to do with the fact that the readers of Melody Maker voted them the top band in the world. It was the first time that the Beatles hadn't won in eight years. Right. Melody Maker's an English magazine. Right. Yeah. Um, and I was at that press conference. Some PR guy let me in. And there is footage on YouTube where you could just see me turn around looking at the camera. But it was Jimmy and Robert answering questions and, um, you know, nothing super heavy. Then I had a retainer deal with Atlantic Records here in L.A., so they would send me out to shoot all their acts who were either playing in town or whatever they needed, and also a lot of gold record, you know, Ahmed holding the gold record and this and that. <laughs> so I did a little work on them for the for the label in 72, and then more work for the label on Zeppelin in 73, which is when I shot the famous picture of Robert holding yeah, the Dove. The dove yes. or, I like to call it a pigeon. Oh, was, it, was it a pigeon? <laughs> well, I'm sure it was. But, you know, the, the, and the story of that... Spray it white or something. Well, you know, I, I, I was at the Hard Rock in Vegas, and there was this really drunk girl, and she says, 
I love that photo of Robert Plant holding the bird. I said, honey, you want to know the story behind that? Yeah. So, and I'm making this up on the fly. I said, well, that wasn't just any bird. That was our tour pigeon. That was Pete the Pigeon. And Pete would fly on the starship with us. Really? I said, yeah. And we had a, a, a gold golden gilded cage for him with red velvet on the bottom for his droppings. Really? I said, yeah. And, and you know, we'd feed him little pieces of lobster sometimes, lobster. but we couldn't feed him too much or else he wouldn't be able to fly. Kidding, really? And I'm thinking, you are so stupid. So finally, I just said, and when we were in a town for two or three days and the crew had to re-up on liquor and food, they'd go out and get little baby sparrows, little groupie sparrows for Pete to fuck. <laughs> Wait a minute, she says, you know. But um, Penny dropped at this point. I so that, you know, I mean, she bought it like hook, line, singer up to that time. But... Um, but that, that photograph was shot at Kizar in 73, a rare outdoor daytime stadium show. Mm -hmm. And they had six birds in a cage behind Jonesy's amp and six in a cage behind Jimmy's amp. At the end of Stairway, they were to be let loose to the air as an homage to mm -hmm. San Francisco, the hate, summer of love, because Robert's a real hippie, mm -hmm. right? Stairway ends, they open the cages, the birds fly away, except for one bird, that does a low pass around the crowd, probably inhaled too much in San Francisco. <laughs> Robert stuck his hand out, and the bird flew right back and landed on his hand. Now, Complete indeed. happy accident. And, that's yeah. that's how that shot happened. Wow. was not planned. I like to say if, it, if the bird would land on Jimmy's hand, it might not have worked out too well for the bird. <laughs> um, but uh, the band, you know, they lo they love my pictures from 73, and Danny Goldberg had been a friend of mine mm -hmm. from when I lived in New York. He started out as a rock writer. So after 73, uh, we shot the launch party for Swan Song, and at that party I said to Danny, I said, if you guys want to take a, a photographer out on the road, because I knew they were going out at the beginning of 75, consider my hat's in the ring. And about a month later, Danny calls me and says, if you want the gig, it's yours. Wow. Got it. And I'm the only photographer that ever was hired as their official tour photographer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Peter held the keys to the kingdom, Peter Grant, their manager. Um, and Peter had street smarts. He was a massive guy, but he trusted me. And they were a very cloistered bunch, mm -hmm. if you know anything about Led Zeppelin. Their whole tour party was maybe 15 people. I mean, the Rolling Stones, you know, Mick Jagger has a guy who brings him his tea. And that guy has a guy who warms the tea up. And that guy has a guy who goes out and buys the tea. And so, and that's why Rolling Stones tickets are $600. But with us, it was band members, Richard, Cole, Peter Grant, me, one PR person, security. And that's it. That was it. So very small bunch. I have to ask. I have to ask you a question. Were you were you at the Halloween, the infamous Halloween party, at the Hellfire Club, um, in London? Uh, no, no. They, I did. They, they they took over the caves. The, the yeah, salt I, caves. Yeah. It was well, like, wasn't the launch party for Swan Song there? I think the, that's, the British one. Yeah. They did one New so York, one LA. And the hookers dressed up as nuns. It was just really. <laughs> don't get me started on that. I got I got hooker done stories uh, for, for days, but um, 
you, you know, Peter gave me his blessing, and um, in 75, I started working for Led Zeppelin. And um, I didn't even, I, I mean, I knew it was a great gig. To say I was in over my head is not really the case, but it was a 24-7. The job didn't end when the show was over. Mm. In fact, it was just beginning. Um, but I was given complete access, go wherever you want to go, do what, do what you need to do, right. get the photos. And the reason they wanted a photographer, which I just found out somewhat recently, was because the Stones had been getting so much press on their tours between 69 and 72 because of Truman Capote yeah. coming back, all these celebrities, like, who, who cared, you know? And Zeppelin is the biggest, baddest band in the land with the swagger. And and they're wiping their butts with the stones every night. But they're not getting the press because, especially Jimmy, was very distrustful of the press because of the bad Rolling Stone reviews of the first albums. But they, But you know what? They said, okay, we'll play the game. We'll invite a couple of journalists here and there. And they were going to need new photos to distribute to magazines. So Danny called me, and I got the job. And when I asked Danny about a year ago, why was it me? And he said, because all the other rock and roll photographers were out of their minds. <laughs> <laughs> so there was no question. And Peter loved me, and I loved him, and I did 75 tour, the 77 tour. Oh my God. I flew to Nebworth. I did, you did Nebworth. I did Nebworth. Yeah, Peter would pay me $500 a week for two weeks, and subsequent weeks, I'd get knocked down to 300 a week. I still don't know why. <laughs> I own all the pictures, but, you know, for Nebworth, he bought me a first-class ticket. Mm. And I tried to cash in the, the return because I wanted to fly on Concord. Oh, wow. And Did Phil, you? No, uh. because Phil Carson calls me on the Monday saying, we got to get the pictures now, and Concord didn't fly every single day. Mm. So I never got to fly, no, and I'm an aviation fanatic. Yeah, so, so you know, thanks, Phil. But um, <laughs> you know, um, but that was you know, Peter. Peter was the best. Um, Peter had found out he was in L.A. I think he was. He went to see ACDC. He might have been thinking of managing them, but I ran into Peter, and he had heard that I had had a lot of camera equipment stolen at a Kiss show at the Sportatorium in Miami. No. If you ever the Sportatorium was a shithole. Mm -hmm. It was in the sticks of the Everglades, one road in and one road out. Mm. So if you didn't do a runner, you're there for hours. Yeah. yeah. At the end of the the, the encores for uh, you know Gene and Paul, I reach under the stage, inside the pit, to get a, a lens out of my Halliburton case, and there's no case. One of the security guys ripped off all my equipment. God. Peter had found out about that when I ran into him a couple months later in L.A. He said, I can't do a Cockney accent, but I heard about your misfortune, and I know someone who has a lot of camera equipment. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it was slightly warm, but it was all <laughs> Canon stuff, and I oh, used good. Nikon. But he offered to buy it all for me. Oh, wow. I mean, that was Peter Rand, you know. Hmm. So... Um, and there's, uh, there, I've got so many Led Zeppelin tour stories. Not bad. Um, oh, th this is a great one. I had to shoot aerial shots of the crowd at Nebworth. 
because Peter was convinced that the promoter was going to try to bone him on the ticket sales to underreport. You know, like he got paid for 105,000 people, and there were clearly 150,000. So uh, one of the swan song guys comes to me and says, do you have any problem going up in a helicopter? I said, I'll go up in anything with wings. So I go out to the helipad. Jimmy's coming in on a helicopter. He comes out, you know, under the rotors, ducking down, and then I zip in. And I have one, one body, two bodies and a lens on each body, one black and white, one color. They take the door off, the side door. I'm strapped in by like a shoelace. But I'm, I, but I'm not scared. And I have the headphones on. The pilot. It's a Jet Ranger helicopter. And I said, just do, do a slow move, a circle around, a 360 around the crowd one way and then dip the other way and go the other way. Uh, so I did that. And I was worried more than anything else that a lens would fall out or a roll of film, which could kill someone at three thousand feet, you know. So, um, the so the Swan Song guy said, "Just hang on to the, the aerial shots, and we'll let you know what to do with them." A couple of weeks later, they call me and they tell me there'll be a man coming to your house tomorrow. Give him the aerial shots, the best ones, color black and white. Don't ask any questions. Just give him the envelope. Next day, knock, knock, knock. Hello, Mr. Preston. I'm here for the envelope. Oh, God. I give this, you know, jack and tie. So very James Bond, you know. I give this guy the, the envelope, and I don't hear anything about it for years. Turned out that Peter had access to some new software that had been developed for NASA. This is 1979. Mm-hmm by which you could take an aerial shot, divide it into quadrants, and the computer, plus or minus 100 people, would tell you how many people were in each quadrant. Multiply that by four, you've got the crowd, plus, plus or minus 400. He wanted those in case he had to sue the promoter. Oh, my God. And he did sue the promoter, and he won. Good grief. So mm. that's Peter Grant's. Yes. And a helicopter story. I, whenever I used to budget, I was always trying to get a helicopter in there somewhere. Oh, just just for the hell of it. <laughs> oh, you know, Motley Crue fly over the desert in a helicopter. Motley Crue. You know, I walk in. Nikki says we got a great idea. They were in Vancouver. Let's shoot on a glacier. There's a glacier 45 minutes from the studio. How are we going to get there, Nikki? The chopper. I said, okay, we're going to need two of them though. One for the band, one for me and my assistant and the equipment. No problem. Next morning. We show up at the airfield, two choppers are gassed, ready to go. No Nicky Six. He had had a long night. (laughs) He showed up at the, so we left to go back to the studio. They were cutting a record, and I had a little talk with him. And, well, because I've been through that too. And Mm -hmm. and actually, if it wasn't for Nicky, I probably would still be out of my mind. Um, But the next day, we went for it again. And we fly up to this glacier, and I have the headphones on, and the pilot's got the headphones on, and I like to produce my own shoots. The one thing I didn't think about, pilot says, you know, it's going to be cold up there. Oh, no. I said, how cold? You know, how cold? He says, really cold. <laughs> I said, what's really cold? Because I can't stand working in the cold. He said, like, 20 below zero. Oh, fuck. You're on a glacier. Hadn't thought about that for some reason. We get up there. 
one chopper, the two choppers had to land about 200 feet away from each other because of the rotors and everything. It was so cold that the band didn't want to walk to my chopper, nor did we want to walk to their chopper. We decided to meet in the middle. <laughs> There's a proof sheet in the book that you can see where Nicky is holding his, his hands in his mittens, uh, his head in his mittens. I took one Polaroid and the Polaroid cracked. Oh no, that's cold. It cracked. I did, didn't even get to You didn't even it. get a chance to put no, it, under, it went, under, over, <laughs> under your arm. It went like an icicle cracking. And there, so there we are shooting a band whose whole vibe is built on we look cool and they're miserable. <laughs> Nikki's like this. I mean, it was, and it was almost like there's just snow and clear sky. It's not interesting, you know. Mm. We could have shot it on stage. We could have exactly. shot it any, on this roof. What a waste of fifteen grand! Mm. Yeah, well, you know, so it goes. Yeah, we, 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 I've been there a couple so, of times. So you know, <laughs> the heading of good, good ideas on paper, but not so good. Yeah. Now, did you work on the James Taylor live record? No, I didn't do Be, the live because one. I got a call from Gloria at Peter Asher's yes, office. Gloria's one day. gone, by the way. You know that? Gone, gone. Yes, yeah, gone, gone. Every day. Yeah, she went like that last well, year, I think. Yeah. She called me and said. If you're not doing anything, once you do it, we have an idea for a live cover, and we need someone to do a test. Can you come by like at six o'clock? Mm. So yeah, so we do this test, and they had built a life a six foot high road case that had a cutout on one side for James, and a cutout on the other side for a guitar. Mm. The idea being, when the show's over, they pack James up in the road Got case it. and yeah. ship him to the next gig. So we shot this test, and uh, they decided to go with something else. I don't know, but I have those pictures. No, I didn't do live. I did. I, I came in at JT, um, and then Dad loves his work and flag and things like that. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it was just, you know, good ideas. That on sounds paper. like one of James's ideas. Yeah, I mean, it was a good idea, but I mean, we just threw it up against a wall. It, it, mm. There was no flourish. I mean. It was just a test to see if he fit in there. Fit in it, and yeah. they're great. You, you'd probably love it because he's like this, and the guitar's there, and you can see you just close, close the up. road case on casters and put it in the truck. Because we, we remember the inside of JT, he's actually a perfect square. Um, I don't recall. Inside, of, yeah. Because what we did, we built a plastic, uh, a plexiglass cube, okay, and crammed him into it. The idea being, <laughs> the idea being that it would make a perfect square. As you pulled him out of this, out of the sleeve, right, out, of, right, out, of the, right. out of the cover, um, but the point was, once he was in there, it was, it was a beautiful shot. And the idea we, we uh-huh. airbrushed the edges out, so right, he, right, 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 he fits in. We couldn't get him out. <laughs> we literally had to. Well, put... <laughs> he's like six foot, whatever, right? Yeah, we had, literally had to sort of push him out with our feet. You know, he was very good about it because it was yeah. his fucking idea in the well, first yeah, place. I mean, you know, look, on a test day, <laughs> nothing matters. Um, we I did a cover for Stevie called Trouble in Shangri-La, and she had this house up on Castellamare in the Palisades, and her view of the Pacific Ocean oh, was just stunning. So she says, "I want we want to do a shot up here. We decide to build a set, like some arches, but we had to bring them up in pieces and build them up there. And uh, so we we bring this set up there, and she puts on this beautiful chiffon thing that's kind of blowing in the wind. And she's on some black 
plexi tile. And in the final shot, the art director took the lines out, mm. so it's reflective. And I shoot 90 rolls of film. My God. Or, well, 12 frames a roll. Yeah, you know. I know. Oh, we're, we're, right. you're in a house but, of and, then, and I shoot yeah. Polaroids, and, and her assistant, Karen, always likes to keep the Polaroids. The first Polaroid we shot is the cover. Oh, really? Is that the amazing? The first one. Stevie says it looks like I'm getting ready to fly away, which it does, but... Ninety rolls later, and you've used the first Polaroid. They did iris scan, and yeah. Stephen, uh, the Warner Brothers art director, um, Ed Slasher. No, no, no. This is like fifteen years ago. Oh, uh, yeah, well, the art. I mean, he added some flowers, and mm. you know, it's. A, and I'm very proud of it. But the first Polaroid, isn't I mean, that amazing. I, I could have like, you know, taken the rest of the day off. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. never know. So, but how did it scan? Did it scan all right? Because yeah, it scanned really well. Oh. I mean, look, you could sharpen it, and mm. I mean, it, no, yeah, it was just enough. I mean, the cover looks great. Mm. So, yeah. and all the inside stuff we shot on film. But you know, it was a long day. But and the sun's got to be just in the right place because mm. if it's too low, it blows everything out. If it's not high enough, the sky's too. Uh, well, it glares. Too, it looks awful. Yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. but it, we hit it perfectly. So. And she just fell in love with the first Polaroid. So you can see on the back, number one. <laughs> so go figure. Yeah, you know? that's how it must. And uh, anyway. All right, so. Uh, but okay. Zeppelin, I could go on and on, you know. Yeah, I know. We that's could do trouble. a whole show about Zeppelin. Yeah. Well, we can do Fleetwood. Um, hang on. What about Springsteen? Do you want to talk about Springsteen? Sure. Uh, sure, Bruce. Um, uh, let's see. I've shot five weddings in my life. One for Nancy Kerrigan the skater, mm -hmm. two for Ozzy Osbourne, and two for Bruce. <laughs> um, Bruce uh, Bruce is, was always really great to me. I was a, I was on the Born in the USA tour, and as I write in the book, when you're on tour night after night, you have to really work at not shooting the same kind of photo every night. You have to look at every show through a different set of glasses. You know, what can I do that's new and different? And I once heard... Um, a very famous photographer named David Burnett, who is a sports photographer, talking to some kids at the Olympics, and they said, Mr. Burnett, you know, where should we shoot from? And he pulls them over to a TV monitor. He says, you see the finish line at the track and field where there's 100 guys with long lenses and foot pedals? He says, you see that? Run the other way. <laughs> because then you'll get to make a picture that no one else makes. And in fact, he's the one who got the very famous picture of Mary Decker when she fell on the track. Oh, wow. When Zola Budd mm. ran over her and stepped on her foot, and Mary Decker's screaming. He happened to be around the third turn. So I learned from David Burnett that you have to think in other ways. At When Bruce played Wembley in 85, this is the peak of Bruce mania, okay? Born in the USA, the peak. And uh, what can I do that's different? They had the stage, the main stage, and then runways with these two little pod stages on the ends. So I decided to mount a remote camera on the on the back railing of the pod stage with a full-frame fisheye looking out towards oh, the wow. crowd. Yeah. The idea being if I can get Bruce to turn around and look at the camera, I'll get him, his face, and, and all whole, of Wembley yeah, Stadium. Got it. Yeah. And I run a remote cable underneath the pod stage, a 10-foot cable. So I only know when he's up there. I don't know what he's doing, right? 
So I go, so I set this up. I go in his dressing room during intermission. I said, "Look, I know you got a lot of shit on your mind, but I've got this camera mounted. There's a remote cable, and when you go out there for Hungry Heart, which he would every night, if you could be so kind as to maybe play to the back of the house." And he's kind of writing a set, not really listening to me. And as I leave, he says, "Yeah, okay," hmm. not knowing if he's actually going to do it. Second set starts, Hungry Heart's like the fourth song. Third song, I go under the stage, got the cable down there. Then I see his boots through the slats. I see these <laughs> boots going, tch, 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 tch. and I know he's up there, and I know that he does stuff during the instrumental break. I count to 10, and I just, boom, 36 frames. No, really. Now, you don't know what you have till the next day, yeah. right? Not only is he looking at the camera he's mugging he's doing this he's doing this he's doing this to nobody because they didn't sell the seats in oh, the back no. of the house so it's kind of a setup but uh, but with with his cooperation yeah, wow. we got a great picture and yes. it's one of his favorite pictures in his autobiography he he had the picture and he wrote the caption was the big 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 time yes i wrote um, got, yeah, got so the um book, yeah. you know Thank you, Bruce. Uh, but he's, uh, I didn't realize, I did the Amnesty Tour in 88. Right. And I never realized how eloquent he is. He would do a press conference in every city and write stuff pertinent to Athens or Abidjan, the Ivory Coast, or Harare, Zimbabwe. I mean, I, it really blew my mind as to how eloquent and smart that he is. Amnesty was in 1988. Yeah. Peter Gabriel and Sting. On the Amnesty tour, depending on what city we were in, we'd have the main principals, Bruce, Sting, Peter Gabriel, Tracy Chapman, Usu Endure, and they'd also bring in a local band uh, to fill out the the show. And, and, you know, it's the right thing to bring in a local band. And... um, uh, in Toronto, um, Katie Lang played. Uh, in Zimbabwe, Johnny Clegg played. I can't remember, uh, you know, Tokyo or Oakland or L.A. I mean, it all kind of blends into one big show. But, yeah, right, yeah. But, um, you know, but we played some heavy shows. Um, Mendoza, Argentina, we had the, 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 the mothers of the disappeared. You know, there were all these people that the hit squads killed and threw the bodies away, and the and the mothers all got together, and it was very moving, and stood on stage with Sting, and you know we saw some heavy stuff, mm. and we also heartbreaking stuff. Yeah. Went, uh, I mean, you know, plus you don't really get to see stuff when you're flying around the world on a rock tour. I like to say the good news is I was on the Great Wall of China. The bad no. news is I was on it with Wham for 20 minutes. But, <laughs> that is funny. But, you know, Bruce, uh, look, you can't go wrong shooting Bruce Springsteen, Jimmy Page, Pete Townsend. Uh, there might be one more, but uh, you know, Freddie. Freddie, you know, They're yeah, giving absolutely. it to you. They're yeah. giving it to you. Yeah, right. You know. And here's a little known fact. You'll love this. Remember when Bruce was on the cover of Time and Newsweek yes, in 75? came this close to happening in 85 as well. Oh, really? And I know because I had the time assignment for the cover. But Time had a mole in Newsweek's picture department and found out that Newsweek was going to put him on the cover again in 85. 
So they pulled my cover and ran full page, but it almost happened again, and that's that not weird? a widely known story. No, that's not. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Because also in 85, you were doing uh, Live Aid. Yeah. Well, I had been on the road with Bruce, and I remember and, uh, and his last gigs were in England. We were up in Manchester or Birmingham, and Bob Geldof came to the show. And mm. I have pictures of him talking to him, and I then realized that Geldof was trying to get Bruce to play Live Aid. Um, and Bruce did not. Um, I guess he was trying to get him to play in Philly because our last gigs were like, July 4th and 5th at Wembley and Live Aid was 13th or something like that but um, and Pete Townsend showed up who's my idol but that's another story at any rate so our last gigs were at Wembley with Bruce and then I got hired as the, the official American photographer for the British Live Aid show so I just stayed at the Mayfair for another two nice. weeks. They had, they, I, they had to throw me out kicking and screaming I love that hotel <laughs> and um and I did Live Aid, um, which was a very long day. But because of my relationship with Queen, which is a very close relationship, Jerry Stickles just grabbed me and said, get on that fucking stage with them. Mm. So I'm the only photographer that was on stage with Queen at Live Aid, which is now a very famous yes. gig. I don't remember it being a great gig or a bad gig. I'm shooting. I'm, I put that stuff out of my brain, mm. you know. But... Uh, it's now considered the greatest 40-minute set ever. And um, it was like being home because I had my band, the, the Queen crew, my boys, my family. So it was no longer a TV show, which is what those things are. Mm. They're TV shows. Yes, right. Now it was a Queen show, and I was home, and, you know, it meant everything to me. You just mentioned TV shows, which obviously um, mm -hmm. brings us to Behind the Music for VH1. Mm-hmm. I had, uh, well, I saw Behind the Music and I said, oh, this this is something that I could contribute very well to. So I ended up negotiating a deal with Behind the Music for 60 shows, an unlimited amount of my photos. And, you know, if it was Madonna, it didn't matter if they want 10 or 100. I got paid a flat rate. I like to talk too much about money, but... I got paid a flat rate for domestic and international per show. They would pay me for 20 shows up front, so it was a good chunk of change. That's nice. And then every three years, they had to re-up the deal. Sweet. Because there was, yeah. So it started being very lucrative. But they would send, in those days, they would send a producer or a runner or whatever from Santa Monica over to my office, and they could look through all the analog stuff. And... You know, Bruce, Frampton, uh, not Frampton, Bruce, Madonna, Zeppelin, whomever. You know, I'd say 75% of the photos in 60 of those shows are mine. Really? Mm hmm. Yeah. Because yeah. my files are very deep. Mm. And um, look, it's a formula show. You know, band goes nowhere, band becomes famous, band gets really loaded, <laughs> fall from grace band ends then they did a reboot about 10 years ago which was behind the music revisited oh. where they added a fourth act you know band resurrects or band die ods or whatever <laughs> so um yeah behind the music and and i get called a lot for photos for all these documentaries that are being made now 
So you must have reams and reams of files. But in, in the, from the I analog have, days. I have 32 <clears throat> four-drawer legal-size file cabinets. Mm. That's 118 drawers or whatever, mm-hmm. plus other files. You can't even blow smoke in them. They're so full. And that's just the analog stuff. Yes, right. I was going to say. You know, I don't, I don't like digital. I've, I hate digital. If I have to shoot a job digitally, I'll always back it up with some film or vice versa. But, you know, I've been in the business, close your ears, ladies, 50 years. Yeah. And it's a lot of film, you know. And uh, <laughs> Mr. Kodak made quite a <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, Kodak, Fuji, whatever. But Fuji film. But, yeah. you know, the files are, are very deep. So so someone like Behind the Music, mm. it, 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 was, it was a perfect marriage. Do you, did you ever use a film, a film stock called GAF 500? Very, very fast. GAF? G-A-F, yeah. Made by GAF? Yes. Had a wonderful grain structure. No, I used to You could to shoot use... in fluorescent light and it would be perfectly color corrected. <laughs> wow, you didn't have to put uh, the pink filter No, no nicotine. No, no nicotines um, well, on the Well, no, I didn't use that. I used Polychrome once in a while, which nope. was the black and white Polaroid transparency film. Yes. Which had a latitude of about a tenth of a stop. <laughs> <laughs> you know. So it's black but, or it's white. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> But you'd, you'd play with that stuff you'd play with. And then Agfa or Ilford made some kind oh, of... Oh, Ilford, FB3 and FB4. That false color film, fashion photographers oh, used that's to right. use that. Yes, that's right. But my favorite film was Panatomic X. X, it, I remember ASA that. ASA 32, Two, yes. which meant it was very slow. It was yes. the Kodachrome of black and white. It was orthochromatic, wasn't it? No, it was black and white. Yeah, no, but yeah, wasn't it sort of ortho as opposed to pancro? No, 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 no. It wasn't? No, oh, okay. It, no, it was regular black and white okay. film, just slow. Yeah. Um, but you could blow a photo up the size of the Empire State yes, no and not see any yes, grain. Right, yes. So Kodak stopped making it in 87 or something, 88 maybe. In 1990, I'm in Argentina, and I walk into a camera store, and they've got Panatomic X. And the, I said, how much you got? And I've got a translator with me. Blah, 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 blah. 160 rolls. I'll buy it all. Oh, God. Yes. At triple the price it should have been. Yes. I bought it all. I was the only guy in L.A. that had And you now got a fridge full of it. <laughs> I was the only guy that had Pantomic X for the next 10 years. <laughs> it's true. That's a great story. That's why I used it to shoot Stevie on the roof. Oh, that's it. Okay. Um, all right, where are we going to go now? Um well, uh, we talked about Queen to an extent. Yes, well, I, I've got Otis Redding, I've got Bob Marley, I've got The Who. I never shot Otis. Oh, you didn't? Okay. No, so, you know, because you look at my page and all of a sudden I designed um, Sergeant Pepper, which I didn't, you know. Did, people just pop things in. It's, well, I, it's I know. I, I guess I, I'm asleep one night and my, my phone goes ding. It's like 3.30 in the morning. I'm a night owl, but I'm just like going off to bed. Ding. It's a Facebook thing. Go back, so ding, ding. Okay, it's some woman from a Jimmy Page, is he or is he not satanic club <laughs> website? And I made the cardinal error. I, I no. responded to her. Oh, okay? no. Okay, so what's your question? The famous passport photo, which is the cover of Jimmy's book, mm. that was a passport photo I shot for him. We've 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 seen the color version. You know, was it shot originally in black and white or color? It's a black and white shot. I said, 
Would you be so kind as to send me the color version? <laughs> 30 seconds later. Ding. Someone has colorized oh, it. Oh, no. It's like a bad Ted Turner movie, colorized movie. And, you know, when they first started, his Lord. eyes are like droopy and all. And I wrote back to her. I said, dear so-and-so. It's an okay uh, version of colorization. It's a very good version of copyright infringement. No, <laughs> I never heard back from her. Great, you know. But I mean, the fans, you know, they're they're crazy. Yeah. No. Well, uh, yeah. But, but the fans with such support with the Beatles. I mean, with the fan club, you know, with the Beatles who used to make their only Christmas imagine. records for them and all that. You know, stuff. I was at Ethan's house. He was telling me John Lennon stories. I mean, he was on the roof with mm. the Beatles. I was on the roof behind the chimney. There yes. you go. Okay. Yeah. Well. And he's telling me John Yoko stories, and, and, and he says, well, I'm probably boring you with this. I said, don't fucking stop. Mm. Don't stop. I want to hear it all, you know. But, um, yeah, fans, you know, the Stevie fans, the worst are the Jimmy Page fans and the Stevie Nicks fans. The Stevie, I, I get the, these emails from this woman years ago. Hi, I'm so-and-so. I bought one of Stevie's outfits at auction, and I'm trying to find the boots that match, if you could be so kind. Very nice email. And I made the mistake of responding. <laughs> A tsunami of emails. I need Stevie's shawls. I need her boots. I need Prince, Prince. What do you got on Prince? I need Bruce's boots. It never ends. Yes. That Once they got you, because you're the mm. one degree of separation. Mm. Yeah, so, I've got, I, as a collector in London, is doing the same thing to me. He's just like, yeah, you know, well, those guys stuff, are out there. He's wanting know. stuff which is copyright anyway, you know, some stuff that maybe I own, maybe I don't, because it's got some grey areas in there. Right. But yeah, it's just like never ending, you know. It, no, and, and then and, they'll send you dimensions of the prints they wanted, you know, you know, oh, and the framed colour to match their curtains or something. And it's yeah, just, ah, well, stop it. You know, <laughs> how, about, how about the rock stars that want photos for free? Oh, yeah. Okay, I don't want to mention any names, Madonna, but um, <laughs> but I know I get this. <laughs> I'm pulling punches. I get this letter one day, this, and it's written by some assistant in this flowery language, like, "Dear Mr. Preston, I'm thrilled to be able to tell you about an exciting project. Oh God, here we go. Of Madonna's fabulous career on a coffee table book. Blah 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 blah. You know, flowery just." It will be the most phenomenal thing ever, and uh, we'd like to see everything you have because I worked on four different tours, and we'd like the photos gratis. <laughs> they sent this to twelve people. I know they sent it to Ken Regan. He ripped it up and threw it away. They sent the letter to Penny Smith, mm -hmm. a photographer in London, and apparently she wrote back the most vile <laughs> letter. She out-viled Madonna, that, which that, is tough to do. That's Penny, yes. Yeah, and, right. <laughs> which I newfound, if I don't, I've never met her, but tell her I love her. Um, so I decide, I wrote back in the same flowery language, and I wrote, dear so-and-so, this sounds like a fabulous project that I'd be thrilled to be a part of, blah, blah, blah. I said, you're welcome to come up and look through everything I've ever shot on Madonna. She can come up to the house. Her reps can come up to the house. I'd be thrilled to be in this book. And then I wrote, and the day she gives away her music for free is the day she's going to get my pictures for free. <laughs> Never heard back nice from them. <laughs> you know, Keith Richards, same thing, you know. I keep getting photographs of the Beatles before my time asking for autographs. You know, uh, uh, and then, <laughs> well, do you know Dave Brolin? 
uh, he's, he used to be the picture editor at uh, Q. I don't and know. He picture edited my book. He's the top photo oh, researcher wow. of music. He knows every photographer, living and dead. He did a gig for EMI some years ago. They needed to redo John Lennon's website. So he had to go to Abbey Road to hmm. go into the vault. So you, it's like that old show, Get Smart. I don't know if you're familiar yeah, with that. Yes. But you go into the room that goes into a smaller room that goes into a smaller room, and then you're in the vault. And there's a guy standing over you. And what he told me, and I never knew this, anytime any Beatle, you know, solo, two of them, four of them, anytime they ever showed up at Abbey Road, there were three photographers on them at all times. So, so a lot of the photos you've seen are only ones that are shot by the one guy. Hmm. So there is a whole bunch of stuff that's never been seen Same, shot yeah. by the other guys. Hmm. See, when I never I, knew the that. last time I saw, um, I, was in, I was in Abbey Road Studio 2, I think, the one with Ringo's kit in, and it was for the Ballad of John and Yoko, which actually the cover, the single cover was shot by Ethan. Uh, uh, Ringo didn't play on that. No, no, no. It was Paul and John. Paul, That's Paul, all it yeah, was. And they were not supposed to be talking to each other because uh, John was in, you know, uh, right. uh, Eastman camp. Uh, Paul was in the Eastman right, camp. Right. John was John, in the Klein right, camp. Right, right. Um, and you know, the but press I were just going found crazy. out that Paul played drums on that. And well, he played. Drums, and I'm back in the USSR. Played drums and bass, and John played lead and rhythm. Just the two of them. Right. Made that, and Old Brown right. Shoe was on the other side. I think. Right. That. Yeah. But that was there. Yeah, that was that. You know, but there's no photographers there. That's the point I was trying to make. Well, at that point. that's unusual. Yeah. You know. um, Yoko was there. She was sitting under 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 the piano. <laughs> God bless her. Yes. Um, but uh, no, I'm a Beatle. I was always a huge Beatle fan, and then I started really discovering the Who. Ah. And Pete is my idol on a hundred levels for many, many reasons. Uh, I read something, I don't know if you read Pete's autobiography. Not yet, no. But it's 600 pages of tortured genius, which oh, is dear. what he is, yes, you know. Right, yeah. The original uh, title of Athena, the song Athena, was Teresa, because he was crazy about Teresa Russell. Oh, really? And he flies to L.A. and knocks on Teresa Russell's door, and Nick Rogue, her husband, answers oh, no. the door, what the fuck are you doing here? But Pete is a genius among geniuses. And I actually had him sign a print of this photo, one for me and one for Cameron, and he signed it right on his ass. <laughs> and while he was signing it, he says to me, that's quite a fine ass. And I said to him, well, it's not as fine as Prince's ass's ass was. And he didn't even look at me. <laughs> but, um, you know, shooting the who, the, uh, you know. We've well, got to I'll put go up with Mooney for a point yeah, well, well, you know, rule number one, you do not go into the Who's dressing room until you're invited. Mm. That is a hard and fast rule because you will get a guitar thrown at you, a drumstick, or worse. When everything's calmed down, it's fine. Um, the Who at Winterland in 76 is probably the best show I ever shot. And, the, you know, you you want an angry Who. You want Pete mad at Roger and blah, blah, blah. Oh, I see. The angrier they are, the better the show. And that's where I shot the cover of the 30 Years Maximum R&B box set. Um, uh, but Roger tried to kill me. He, I was in the pit, and he thought I was stepping on the monitor cables because his, his stage monitors were cutting out. Mm. I wasn't stepping on anything, and he's swinging the mic, oh, no, and thing. it's coming closer and closer to my head. 
Now, I'm not a physicist, but a five-pound microphone on a 20-foot cable. It's 60 miles an hour. Uh, yeah, <laughs> can do some damage, can ruin your day. And, but I'm in the zone because Pete's on fire and I'm getting the greatest pictures. I'm having the time of my life. All of a sudden, in the middle of the set, a roadie the size of a house bear hugs me, picks me up, takes me to the side of the pit. Like, what, 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 what? I'm shooting what, what? He, he says, Roger thinks that you're stepping on the cables. We know you're not, but he will kill you to get you out of the pit. So we're saving your life. Okay, so the guy then goes and picks up my camera bag, hands it off to me like an Emmett Smith handoff for the Cowboys, and there I am. So then I, so it was at Winterland where they had the upstairs little ramp with the five rows, and that's where I shot this picture, which is the reverse shot looking out towards the crowd. Okay. Um, but that's, you know, that's the who. And uh, uh, I gave Pete a, a box of prints about five years ago uh, when they played Farsal's Tennis Stadium, which is five blocks from where I grew up. And after the show, I don't know if you know Pete, but he's always Mr. Grumpy, you know. So I gave the box to Alan Rogan, his guitar roadie, and put it in the road case, and I never heard from Pete, and I was shattered. And then I was down in Rio with Roger and Brian, and I got an email from Pete saying, thanks so much for the pictures. You know, Roger's been sick, but I've never seen a lot of these, and they're so great, and we'll see you when we get back to the States. And I run into Brian and Roger's dressing room. I got an email from Pete Townsend. They're, they're sad, sad boys, because, you know, they're pretty famous, Roger Roger Taylor and Brian May. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Yes. But, uh, yeah, The Who, uh, I, my favorite band. To I had more fun with Queen... I had more notoriety with Led Zeppelin because of how famous they were. But I enjoyed shooting The Who more than anybody. Mm, that's interesting. By far. Yeah. And you by, managed by to keep far. Mooney under control. Yeah, I, he had I didn't... had this dreadful habit of spiking a drink with LSD if you well, want to. You know, well, <laughs> you, you know, I started <laughs> with them. Well, Pete Rudge managed Skinnerd as well. Yes. So Skinnerd opened up for The Who on a couple of tours. I didn't really. I wasn't around Keith too much. I was. Uh, I was around the roadies, mm -hmm. Pete a little bit. You know, I. I basically did tour stuff. I didn't have to be palsy wowsy. Mm -hmm. I, I don't care about being palsy wowsy with the band. No, I got in a pro on a project with Mooney, but it, it, it fell apart because it, yeah. it was going to be a solo I, I, album. And it didn't mind you, the '79 tour, even though Kenny Jones '79 tour was off the chart. It was amazing. I mean, Pete was on fire. Mm. 82 tour, the last tour. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, still, I mean, Pete, the, his lyrics speak to me. He's one of the greatest guitar players ever. He plays guitar and rhythm at the same time. Yes, I know. Too. And, you know, they used to say Janis Joplin had vocal cords. She could sing two notes yeah. at the same time. What a... So. Okay, then, you know, can I just... Sort of yeah, segue into do it. Dylan and Petty, Tom Petty. Yeah. Um, uh, Bob hired Tom and the Heartbreakers to be his backup band on a Japanese tour. <laughs> and, um, I, you know, a lot of these calls happen at the last minute, mm -hmm. like the Wilburys and stuff. But I go to the stage uh, in Hollywood, 
and Tom's there and Bob's there. And we just shoot some, oh, they needed some group shots for the Japanese poster. So I shot a couple of things on the stage and then we went out to the alleyway and shot some, some stuff uh, just for Japan. Bob's a tough guy. Um, there was a time I, I was assigned to shoot Bob. He had another band and I had to location scout, and I looked in this alley, and they had this con convex or concave mirror, you know, so when you're backing up. Yes, right. Right. And Bob says to me, let's shoot some group shots in the mirror. That's a good one. I like and that. I said, I said, well, you know, Bob, it's kind of been done, you know, the birds, Mr. Tambourine Man. He said, we're just going to have to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. So we did. Um, and what... But you know, Tom. Tom was Tom. Tom rolled with the punches. I mean, Tom Petty. You he could, could never... be tough, actually. Tom he was very charming about it's being very tough. charming. Yes, yeah. but he he knows exactly what he wants. Yeah, yeah. And, and even if you disagree with him, he's still going to get it. Yes, he is. And Tony's going to make sure he does. Yes. <laughs> no, Tom was was great. And um, uh, when when I got the, I got this call from Mary Clouser one day who worked for Tony Dimitriotis, Tom's mm. manager, and Mary says to me, what are you doing today? Nothing. Can you go and shoot Tom and some of his friends out at Dave Stewart's house? Sure. You know, they're recording out there. Let me call my assistant. I call her back, and I say, okay, what's the address? And she goes, well, I have Tom on the other line. I'll have him call you and give you the address. Five minutes later, Hey, Neil, how you doing? It's Tom. Hey, Tom, blah, blah, blah. What's the address? He said, well, you take the 101 <laughs> out to to the exit named, the exit named, the exit named. He says, talk to George. George who? A distinct <laughs> Liverpoolian <laughs> accent. <laughs> and I don't remember anything else about the phone call. No. You know, um, so I go out there and it's, it's uh, Tom and George Harrison, Jeff Lynn, Roy Orbison, and Bob. Oh, Roy Orbison. One oh, roadie, no handlers, and me and my assistant. Good God. So we do what are supposed to be some one-off pictures very quickly. And I come in and George pulls me aside. I had met him once before. He pulls me in this room and he says, okay, look, when Bob's in the right mood, you know, I'll give you the look. And, you know, when Bob's ready, we'll shoot, you know. Just be careful of Bob. We'll let you know. Then Tom comes in, big hug, because I know him better. He says, when Bob's ready. <laughs> it's the same rap, right? The same exact rap. And I have these test frames of Bob, uh, of the four of them, and you can see Bob way in the background playing a video, playing a pinball machine. And then the next shot, he, He's in. you know, I mean, boy, is he tough. And those steely eyes, you know, when yeah. he gives you that stare, it goes right through you. I, I worked on Ronaldo and Clara. Do you know that sort of dreadful four-hour movie that he well, made? Well, I didn't see it, but yeah. I don't have four hours I had to watch to it three or four times. Oh, you may. Um Yeah, with Bob. So, uh, well, but, but my story actually is, is kind of a, is a horror story because um, I got my carousel projector going oh, yeah. you know, when I was projecting all the t titles for the, for the mm -hmm, movie. Mm -hmm. That was the idea. So I think I better take a spare with me. I've got a light box, mm -hmm. and I've got a carousel, right. and I've got a spare bulb. And we get to his the the, the, the um, st sound stage it was, it was on. I can't remember where it was. 
and I plugged it all in and sort of bulb books in and I popped right. the, the, the carousel was already loaded. Right. Bang. Bloody bulb explodes. Okay. Pull it all out, put it in, put in another one. Bang, it all explodes. So we ended up kneeling at on a light box with a loop, looking at all these things. He was very gracious, actually. Right. He was very gracious, but boy, I, I got that stare. Oh, yeah, it's <laughs> terrible. Um, you, you, you know, I like to say when you're starting out in the business, sometimes you got to shovel shit, right? Yes. So there was a point where me and my partner at the time used to have to shoot a lot of press parties. We get assigned to shoot this Rod Stewart party in Beverly Hills. Lots of stars there. Bob's there. Greg and Cher. McCartney. Hmm. So, unfortunately, one of one of us had to be inside shooting and one of us had to be outside. So I decided, okay, I'll be outside the restaurant and I'll have to shoot these people as they leave. First, I shoot Paul and Linda, who are bitching and moaning at me. And I don't want to be there anyway. I'm the worst paparazzi in the world. <laughs> then I see Cher, who's mouthing off to me, but I thought, well, maybe Greg will be right behind her, yeah, and I right, know yeah. Greg pretty well. No, And then Bob comes out. And I take one picture, and he says, you're a leech, you're a leech, you're a leech. <laughs> and he was right. <laughs> you know, when Bob Dylan calls you a leech, you guess you're a leech. You, you're a leech. <laughs> and it was the last party I ever shot, but I got the stare. Yes. You're a leech. <laughs> oh my god we talked a little about stevie but yeah. stevie's the closest thing i've ever had to amuse in oh, okay life. and um well the outfit that caught the wind yes but she's standing on the roof of a six foot built six-story building where she was living and if a real bad gust of wind would have hit she would have flown away oh my god so I had to. The reason you don't see her boots in any of those shots is I had an assistant on his stomach, holding her ankle. I said, "Do not look up her dress. Do not look <laughs> at me. You hold on because if she flies away, it's going to ruin Time Life's insurance department's Just, day." Not to mention some great pictures you will get. As well, as you as know, she flew. But but uh, you know, I mean, but she's been so good to me, and we've shot so many pictures and. She is the most creative person I've ever met. Hmm. Every day she will paint or write poetry. Or uh, I once got her some Marshall's photo oils to, to hand yes, tint. Yes, I know them, yeah. And as she tells it, and I have a tape of her saying this, she says, Neil gave me these Marshall's oils, and he tried to show me how to do it and put a little blue on one of my leg warmers, and I said, I don't like that, Neil. Why don't you just give me the oils and uh, get lost? <laughs> Two days later, she's a world-class hand tinter. Good God. I mean, that's how good she is. Okay. And oh, there's you know something else. We should, we should cover the Jackson 5. My, Michael and the Jackson 5. Yes. Um, uh, I used to shoot the brothers out at the Encino house. I, I don't. Michael must have been 11 or mm -hmm. something. For some teeny bop magazines. And it was always very strange because, first of all, it was like an assembly line. You know, you shoot this one, this one, this one, then the group shots and out. But Michael was a very mannered but strange kid. He, it always seemed to me like he had the weight of the world on his shoulders, even as a kid. Kind of like one of those movies where you know, the, the king dies, and now the 10-year-old prince is mm -hmm. now king. Mm -hmm. 
So everyone goes, your majesty, what do we do now? And the kid says, I don't know, I'm 10. I don't know what the fuck to do. <laughs> That's the vibe that I got from yeah. Michael Jackson when he was a kid. He was very shy when I saw him because he was about you know, four foot something yeah, with yeah, his yeah. huge fro. He was just very quiet, but he was very, you know. But he was very, he was very polite. Yeah. But, yeah, but not a lot of small talk. Or, no. or not a lot of, I mean, he'd talk to you, but he was guarded. But there was, pr- I just yeah. saw a lot you, of pressure. You had to do the lead when it, if you yeah, talked to him. But you could tell yeah. there was a lot of pressure on him. I think it came from the dad. Oh but, my God, he was a but, monster, um, wasn't he? You know, we and I remember one shoot in particular, and I call it the loneliest boy in the world, where he's alone in his backyard and he's got the John Lennon hat, kind of the Liverpoolian mm. hat, and the pointed Beetle boots and the flared bell bottoms but he looks like the loneliest kid in the world Mm. and look you know we know we know what happened Uh, he came to see freddie one night him and the uh, this is like 1980 uh backstage a lot of people used to come see queen you know whoever at the time donna summer olivia this one andy warhol showed up so michael shows up with the brothers at the forum. And I have these pictures of Fred talking to Michael. Well, apparently, after that gig, Fred goes up to Michael's house and they do some recording for a couple days. And they get through day one. I think it was a couple days. And Michael has his llama there in the studio. (laughs) And they're doing State of Shock, which ultimately came out with Mick Jagger doing the, the guest vocals. But apparently... Freddie's in the vocal booth and the llama is right there and he pulls off his headphones and says I can't sing with this fucking llama anyway, and he walks out and that was it I mean End of story. I could just see Freddie you know this fucking llama I, I mean you know Freddie I you know uh, Roger and Brian are close friends of mine Freddie had his own posse you know but but you know Michael and um and the last time that I actually talked to Michael was when he, the first lawsuit where he, they paid the kid off the $25 million or something, and he did a worldwide TV broadcast with Oprah, an interview from Neverland Ranch. Hmm. And he came over to me and said, oh, I haven't seen you in so long, and shook my hand, and uh, small talk for 30 seconds. And, and the only photographers there were me and Sam Emerson, who was hmm. working for Michael at the time. And he walks away, and I smell this cheap perfume. He had doused his hand in the cheapest of perfumes, so when he shook my hand, it got all over my hand. It was horrible. <laughs> why? I don't, I don't know why. You'd have to ask him. <laughs> I mean, it's a bit difficult. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, it, but uh, I shot a couple of shows on the Bad Tour, and it turned out to be the, his big tour, mm-hmm. and. And you know Cheryl was one of his backup singers, Cheryl Crow, and um, so yeah, Michael was just uh, strange. Yes, definitely nice, talented beyond mm. belief, but strange. Yeah, when he became the king of pop, I was supposed to present him with Which the always, Billboard Award. Always made me think of soda pop. Yes, you know? I know it's the king of pop, quite like right. Pop Warner football and know. he had i had the because i designed the sort of billboard award uh, thing oh yeah you know the, the actual right. award itself but he wanted a gold-plated one okay oh, which we could do um but i had to sign a a, a, a form a 
formed letter to say that if I'm going to deliver this to, to uh, up uh, somewhere up on the top of Doheny where his house was, um, I would have to um, sign this piece of paper which says that I would not reveal to the press mm -hmm. what he looked like, and mm -hmm. I would address him as the King of Pop. Oh no, like yeah. Your Majesty or mm -hmm. Oh Jesus, and this is a new one. I didn't do it. I said someone else can give him his bucking award, you know, because I mean I can't do that. Well, it's silly. I mean, when when me and the People magazine writer went to Japan for the for you know as a People assignment to shoot uh, three or four shows, he opened in Japan on the Bad Tour. Uh, I got to shoot whatever I wanted, which was great. And the writer, Todd, had all these questions for Michael, and he wouldn't do a formal interview. So F Frank DeLeo, Michael's manager, mm -hmm. made Todd write the questions out on a piece of paper and slip them under Michael's door. So he did. The next day, Todd calls me up and said, listen to this. A three-page letter, not really addressing the questions, but, oh, my God. I was sent from above to help the children of the world. This unbelievable letter. He faxes it to Time Life in New York. They want to run it on the cover along with my picture, but they can't run it from a fax. No, of course not. So the letter had to be hand-carried to New York. <laughs> I called my editor and I said, Japan Airlines only has first-class tickets available. Oh, nice. <laughs> Sorry, MC, but that's the truth. <laughs> um, and uh, so I, ha I had carried the letter that he wrote, and Todd still has it, and it's unbelievable. God knows what it's worth. Mm. But, um, you know, yeah. Looney Tunes. Looney Tunes. Um, but, you know, the, the, the artists, the bigger the artists, you know, the more tortured or... Well, yeah, I mean, I had, to, I had to deal with Phil Spector. And that oh, was, my God. Yes, yes. Well, Almost in the same, uh, uh, yeah. Right. You, you walk the in there and you get frisked and all this stuff, and you know. Uh, he used to have a secretary na named Paulette yes. when I first moved to L.A. God, I had a crush on her, but um, you know. So look, look, Glenn and Don. You know, I mean, Don's a genius. Mm, you know, yeah. Glenn was a genius. Yes, true. You know, and I never realized how well read Don is. Was is you know, and. Those songs are crafted as well as anyone. Any, yeah, absolutely. You know, right. yeah. Tchaikovsky, anybody. You know, I like to say that Lindsey Buckingham is a musical genius as as much as Brian Wilson or Paul McCartney. I truly believe that, and I got to put Glenn and Don up there too. Mm. You know, I mean, really, I mean, the Eagles. I've seen them working in Miami with Simzik. You know, actually on Hotel California, and it was like, my God. You know, because you're, 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 you're in there at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning mm -hmm. and, you know, you've got to get a plane at 6 to get to the printers. Oh, you know, I know the uh, feeling. So yeah. we're flying around all over the place at this time, at this point in my life. How long were those sessions? Endless. I mean... <laughs> I don't mean every day, like months, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because Hotel California was late. Right, and that followed, that followed one of these nights, right? Or classic. We tried to get... We had to do a, a, a Rolling Stone cover... Cameron wrote the article, and I, we tried five different group shots, and finally Irving rented us a boat. We were in Chicago, and we shot on a boat in Lake Michigan, like a mile off the coast of Chicago. Mm. And the Blue Angels were doing a July 4th, you know, 
uh, acrobatic show in between Chicago and the boat, but didn't really help for a cover. But that's where we shot the cover. Oh and, wow! Didn't know that. You know, um, it was, there was one show that they played. I will never forget. It was a small hall. It was maybe a gymnasium, and you know, Glenn's nickname was Teen King. And the great shots of him signing autographs, looking at me like, yeah, this is life. But Glenn sat on the stage with his feet, legs dangling off the side and played this long bluesy intro to Witchy Woman. Mm -hmm. And they weren't really a jam band. And some guy yells out, Wes Montgomery, because he was channeling Wes Montgomery. It was the best, best Mm. Eagle show I ever saw. Mm. Glenn was insane. He was so good. Yeah. Amazing, you know, yeah. Glenn Fry. That was a tough one. That was a tough it one. Really when was, he died, you know, cool. I mean, my tough ones were Glenn, Keith Emerson, and Greg Lake. Mine was Mark Boland because I was kind of close to Mark Boland. Yeah, I and, did his live record, mm-hmm. and um, you know, I mean, even but every one of them takes a little bit of your spirit away. Yeah. Even Natalie Cole, who I shot once. Oh my God! You know, I mean, All I was six foot two of her. Yes. You know what? <laughs> I was playing blackjack at the Tropicana. I was in the best mood, and I hear the pit boss say to someone, "Donna Summer passed away." Mm-hmm. They told me they'd never seen someone's mood change mm. on a dime like that because Donna was so nice to me. And but every one of them, well, Lennon particularly, because I was teaching. Oh, well, well, and all well, of a sudden you knew I dis- dismissed, yeah. You knew him. I mean, that was just... I just dismissed the class. I, I couldn't even... Yeah. I, I still can't wrap my head around that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I every day I wake up and I, I literally pray to God. I say, I hope Pete's okay, because mm-hmm. that's not going to be a good day for me. Well, this is a jolly subject. We're on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, just you lighten, like this, people? But, but, the mood. You, but, you know, yeah, but this is what happens. Here, this is what happens. <laughs> yes, and I think the fans understand that, you know? You're right. Neil, I want to talk to you about your tours, and so because you could have told me a little earlier that every tour has its own flavor, it has its own sort yeah. of way of being yeah. run. Every, and well, put every together. rock tour, I mean, I'm talking about the big ones, has its own personality, right. and it's a personality that differs from the sum of the parts of the individual members. Um, a Rolling Stones tour, a Zeppelin tour, I mean. They have their own personality, and that personality can change on a dime given a bad audience, a bad record review in the paper, um, uh, the drummer got the clap, the lead guitarist screwed the bass player's wife, you name it. The equipment didn't just, you know, I mean, and it, so you have to be aware, your antenna have to be out, and you have to go with the flow. Uh, and of course, I, I might have said before, but I, I have to be invisible on a tour. And the way to become invisible, ironically, is to be completely visible at mm-hmm. all times. Because then you become part of the fabric of the tour. No one bitches when the drum roadie comes in to get the practice pad. I like to be the same way. So, um, And some are looser than, than others. Um, there are a couple of stories that I personally love um on and uh, i want to hear on a, well on a led zeppelin tour one night well i'm gonna tell two led zeppelin stories quickly john bonham great guy but give him some alcohol he's the beast mm. 
the last night of the 75 tour is a makeup show because Robert had been sick for one of the shows. So we have to fly from New York to St. Louis, do a show, and come right back. I'm going to get some sleep. This is the end of the tour. I haven't slept in a month, literally, 45 minutes a night. So during the encore, I drop one blue Valium, 10 <laughs> milligrams. In the, in the limo, I drop a second blue Valium because I'm going to knock my ass out. We get up, we we get to the airport. We come. Yeah, I walk up the stairs, put my camera bag down. Third blue volume. Oh my god, man! Okay, well, I wanted to go to sleep. So put my bag down. I go and I get a little a coke and a little something to eat. I get and I'm just ready to like lay down, and a really drunken John Bonham comes up to me and he goes, "Let's see your knob." <laughs> it's British for penis. Yes, yes, yes. Terribly, terribly and uh, so what do you say? You know, <laughs> nervous laughter. I said, "Let's see your fucking knob." So, with thirty milligrams of Valium coursing through my bloodstream, I now have three off-duty New York cops, all of whom are packing, who are our security guys, wrestle me to the ground. Every bit of clothing comes off me, and I'm on I'm on the floor of the plane, looking up to see a somewhat bemused Jimmy Page playing judge and jury, looking over me, obviously not impressed with what he was looking at. <laughs> That's one story. Another, but why, why, why were you sort of wrestled to the ground? Because John Bonham wanted to see my, my knob. Because he was drunk. Yeah, I know. There, you but know why did the cops wrestle you to the oh, ground? Because he told them to. Oh, I see. It was our security guys. Oh, my God. Yeah, he wasn't going to do it. He's, <laughs> he's got three other guys to do it. Oh, my God. Um, and they're all packing. Yeah, but they didn't use the guns. I mean, that, this wasn't a fight I was going to win anyway. No, sure. Okay, but $30 million, uh, uh, Then there was a night in Cleveland at Swingo's uh, where I had the room next to Jonesy. Each band member had a two-room suite. And I, my single room happened to be next door to Jonesy, and we'd open the door. So it looked like Jonesy had a three-room mm-hmm. suite. Bonzo, of course, destroys my room with a blackjack, a telescopic blackjack, because he thinks that Jonesy's got a, he thinks the photographer's got a three-room suite. I don't know what he thought. So I change rooms. The next night, I get into bed. I'm finally getting asleep, three in the morning. Oh, my God, this is great. Turn off the light. I, like, tuck in. Within one minute, someone kicks the door down with his boot the door in between mine and the next room, and it's Robert. Oh, God. Kicks the door down. Boom. And he says, it's the Prince of Peace come to call. Do you have a joint? I'm like, yeah, Robert, it's me, of course. You know, so I'm sitting there half naked, smoking a joint with Robert, who's just knocked my door down with his boot. Um, thank you very much. Yes, yes. I mean, stuff like that. I could tell you a million stories like that. And there, note, on another session, we will yeah, hear yeah, them But all. the the other story I love is being on the road with Pearl Jam, 93 or something like that. I had been taking flying lessons. I never got certified, but close. We take, we're flying from Spokane to Vancouver or Seattle to Vancouver. And the pilot, I asked the pilot if I could sit and fly co-pilot with him because I've never been in a nighttime takeoff. Mm. It's fantastic. And he lets me sit there the whole flight. 
at one point, and he, and he t- pulls the autopilot off, and he says, keep your altitude, and I do, and I kind of know what I'm doing. And then he says, I got to take a leak. I'll be right back. Okay, it was like eating my own stomach. I was I was so scared, and I'm flying Pearl Jam's plane. I don't. It could have been thirty seconds. It could have been two minutes. I don't know. He said, "Keep your heading, keep your altitude. I'll be right back." I didn't know if the if the head was like right in back of the door at the back of the plane. Thank God he came back, and then I flew the plane until we got into the pattern, the landing pattern into Vancouver. I never told the band. I bet. When they read the book, that's when they found, I never told Eddie or any anyone, I flew Pearl Jam's plane. Good God. So, you know, you, you can't, it's it's so great, you know. Um, and I love flying and I miss it, but, well, I don't miss it, I do it all the time, but flying will take all your stress away because you have to concentrate mm. on flying because you've got your life in your hands. So, Aww. but, you know, many, many stories on so many tours, and well, then we're gonna have to, and they're, and they're all real. Like, yeah. I don't have to embellish them. And, yeah. and you know what? If well, I was the instigator, roll, I'm happy to say so. Yeah, so I, on that note, I think we're gonna wrap it up. Okay, we, we, we do have to come back and do yeah, yeah. well, you know, much, I do have more. this book that came out, right? I want you to pop, plug um, that. It, uh, it's called Neil Preston Exhilarated and Exhausted. I came up with that title because that's the way I feel every day of my life. I have a 49-year case of jet lag, which has never dissipated. And um, I thought about that title, and I slept on it, and I called Cameron the next day. I said, what do you think? Because he's the only person I trust. Am I out of my mind, or is it genius? He says, it's genius. My publisher didn't like it, but I hammered him. And it's 336 pages. That I'm very proud of the text because it's funny, it's a little snarky, it's my personality, and the challenge was to get my personality in words and text on the page. We all have a pile of rock books in the corner <laughs> that we never look at. You know, I, I read 50 of them, they all seem like the same book. They were flat as a board. Mm-hmm. I wanted mine to stand apart, so that's... And it does, it why, is a well, fabulous thank, book. Thank you very much, yeah, and it's, it's really uh, published sticks. by Real Art Press, that's R E E L A R T P R E S S dot com. They're out of London. Um, you can just contact them directly and order it. Obviously, you can get it on Amazon, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, I'm very proud of it. And, um, and so you should be. It's fantastic. Yeah. And, uh, Ladies there, and there gentlemen, you go. get this book. It's remarkable. Thank you. Remarkable. Thank you. Hey, man, this was great. Thank you so much for Thanks. making that Thanks journey across me. town. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> It's, I have a friend who says his, his car insurance doesn't cover him east of the 405. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's not so bad from Studio City, but I'm happy no, to do it. City. And this was really, really fun. Yeah. And, you know, we haven't worked together on any, maybe a project or two here or there, but it worked. And, and yeah. you know, and look, you, he's more famous than I am, ladies oh, and gentlemen. Oh, bollocks. No, come on. Come you on. Know, and I could never do your job. I'm the worst art director um, in the world. Well, the art director is actually really a diplomat. Yeah, you but... Stray, stray between, you know, the artist and the label, and sometimes these guys well, don't talk yeah, to I each mean, other. Well, yeah, I mean, secretary, you got a Hillary Clinton your way through it, but, yes, you, you right, know, exactly. I tried to do some test covers 
for my for my book uh, for my publisher, and he wrote me back and he said, "Do not quit your day job." <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. So, but anyway, this anyway, is great. mate, great. Thank you so much. We're about to Thank shake you. hands and shaking hands now. Oh, yeah, <laughs> far out, man. All right, thanks for having me. See y'all later. Later. Okay, that's me, Kosh, coming to you from the couch with the, dare I say, the infamous rock photographer, Neil Preston, and his wonderful tales, shooting some of the greatest names in rock. Now, that's a portfolio. Who knows, maybe in the future we should work together. That would be a gas. Find his incredible book, Neil Preston, Exhilarated and Exhausted. By the way, there is a call forward from Neil's good friend, Cameron Crowe. And you might just be interested in checking out his website, PrestonPictures.com, especially if you'd like to pick up a print or two. OK, you have been listening to The Art of Rock with Caution Friends, almost live, from the epicentre of Hollywood's golden triangle of renowned recording studios. I am online at koshdesign.blog.com and you can find me on Facebook at koshart and Twitter. You can find all the Pantheon podcast shows on Spotify, Radio.com and Pandora. In fact, if you search, you can find us on about 50 different podcast distribution platforms these days. We are growing and growing. Finally, this is the one that matters most to us. If you enjoy what we do here, please tell a friend about Pantheon Podcast. This has been Art of Rock, a production of Rock and Roll Archaeology, now famously known as Pantheon Podcasts. Long live rock and roll and the 12-inch square. No one knows what it's like To be the bad man To be the sad man Behind blue eyes No one knows what it's like to be hated To be faded To telling only lies But my dreams They aren't as empty As my conscience Seems to be Art of Rock is written by Kosh and produced by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Jerry Danielson. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. 
All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at the RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at RNR Archaeology. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.